BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In the early 1990s, Gloria Steinem reflected on a change that she'd seen in her times on the front lines of feminism. For women to enjoy physical strength is a collective revolution, she wrote. I've come to believe that society's acceptance of muscular women may be one of the most intimate, visceral measures of change. In a new book, Let's Get Physical, Danielle Friedman explores how that change came to be, how women reinvented physical fitness, and the sexism, classism, and racism that have dogged the industry from the start. There's a lot more to it than Jane Fonda and today's wellness influencers, but there's also Jane Fonda and today's wellness influencers. We'll talk about it all after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Danielle Friedman's new book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World, is basically a perfect book. Start with the title, a play on Olivia Newton-John's hit, and a second play on the idea of reshaping not the buttocks, but the world. The book uncovers an important history that was sitting right there in the open, but had never been wrapped between covers and contextualized with the fitful fight for women's rights. At the same time, while it celebrates the pioneers of fitness like Jane Fonda and the women who brought you jazzercise, it's also not insensitive to the ways that fitness could be bent towards patriarchal and destructive body norms laced with a smiling racism and classism. All this to say, get ready for a fascinating and illuminating hour, whether you love sweating buckets on the Peloton or have never set foot on a treadmill. Thank you so much for joining us, Danielle Friedman. Thank you so much for having me. What a great introduction to the book. I did. I love the book. I'm not going to, I mean, probably you would <laughs> expect you. it. I like exercise, et cetera, but this is really fantastic. And before we excavate the sort of glorious history you've written, I do want to start the conversation with what we see around us today, like athleisure, the mm-hmm. clothing on everyone. It's like aerobics exploded out of the studio and into the rest of the world. How do you see the current state of quote unquote fitness? Oh, wow. What a great question. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right that aerobics did did explode out of the studio and into the world in the early 1980s. And it's sort of a trend that we've seen, you know, continued up to today. Um, it's taken various shapes and forms um, over the past few decades. But um, 
You know, um, as it has with pretty much everything else, the pandemic has really led to a kind of paradigmatic shift in fitness, in the way we practice fitness, the way we think about it um, on a practical level. You know, many people began embracing home fitness as we were forced to be isolated in our homes. But um, I've also seen and, and heard just anecdotally um you know, I think we might be at the beginning of a transition where there's sort of uh, a more expansive view of what fitness means, what it can do for our mental health and its potential beyond just as a way to shape and forever be kind of improving the body. You know, it can be there's there's more conversations now around fitness for for overall well-being. And not to overly personalize this, because you're mostly working in the you know vein of a journalist and historian in this book. But mm-hmm. what was your own relationship to these things before you got you know writing the book? Yeah, so I have been reporting and writing on women's health for a few decades now, but I'd never really, I'd always kind of kept my my fitness life <laughs> separate from my professional life. Mm-hmm. Um, I am a lifelong runner, um, and running holds a very near and dear, you know, place in my heart. I've run many half marathons and I ran the New York City Marathon. Um, But the book, the book began, it was a pretty organic origin. Um, I decided to venture into my first bar workout class about five years ago. And bar at that point had already become the multi-billion dollar industry that it is today. And um, while I was taking the class, I, I was doing a lot of reporting on women's sexual health at the time. And I noticed that many of the moves in class were sort of sexual in nature. They focused on the pelvis and pelvic tucks and tilts. And I decided to investigate. I was thinking, is bar actually, you know, a, a kind of secret tool for women's sexual health? Um, the story and the answer was that, most definitely yes. <laughs> most definitely yes, yes. I'm 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 um transitioning into my own relationship and and the story of the book, but they're very much intertwined. Um yeah, long story short, that experience led me to the story of Lottie Burke, the woman who invented bar in the late 1950s, who was this free love revolutionary, former dancer, incredibly interesting, eccentric, complicated person who who um, wanted her workout to, she created it explicitly to help women improve their sex lives at the beginning of the sexual revolution, as well as to become strong, as well as to, you know, shape their their aesthetic appearance. Um, but, but yeah, discovering Lottie's story just opened my eyes to this much bigger story that I felt needed to be told. We're talking to Danielle Freeman about her new book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. And of course, we want to hear from you on this topic. What's a workout regimen you've picked up that you never would have imagined yourself trying? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum, and the emails forum at uh, KQED. Org. Let's hear a little bit more of that Lottie Burke story, because it really is, you know, it kind of helps do the work in the book of you situating fitness within the, the changing sort of mores and also the feminist movement. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So 
Lottie herself was just, um, you know, as I said, this incredibly fascinating character. And, and I should say one of the reasons this topic really drew me in is that I discovered, I quickly discovered that for every fitness movement, there is this kind of Lottie Burke-like character, you know, almost like Forrest Gump-like character who just lived nine lives and fitness happened to be part of it. So happened to be one of them. So Lottie was a German modern ballerina who, um, fled Nazi persecution in the 1930s for London. And in the late 50s, she was basically a dancer without a stage. She was in her 40s at that point. She was looking for a way to um, earn a living. And at that time, there was really nothing like um, the boutique studio that she created that existed, um, neither in London, where she was based, or in the U.S. Um, but she... she believed that women were capable of um, pushing themselves much, much harder, you know, than, than they were encouraged at the time. Um, Lottie's own, Lottie herself was just very open and frank about her sex life. And she recognized that as women developed what she liked to call corsets of muscle, it, it, it could lead to some, some, you know, um, increased, um, satisfaction in, in their in their sex lives. But what was happening more broadly at that time um, was that there were there were a lot of fears about what vigorous or strenuous movement could do to a woman's body. Hmm. Um, the myth that I heard again and again, and the first time I heard it, I didn't believe it. And then I, you know, the, I just, it still shocks me, but girls and women in the 1950s and 1960s grew up believing that vigorous exercise could make their uterus fall out. Um, <laughs> I've been trying to fit, you know, I'm just thinking anatomically how, you know, but that it clearly had a, a persistence, this myth, right? It really did. And it kind of goes hand in hand with this other myth, which is that vigorous exercise would turn a woman into a man. That was the language that was used. And I put that in quotes. Um, but women I interviewed, including some of the pioneers, really believed as young women that if they, if they, you know, really got out there and worked hard, they would grow a mustache. They would physiologically change. And when you think about the uterus falling out and the other, there were other fears around damage in general to women's ability to have children, reproductive organs, you know, it's all, all of these things are kind of pointing to this idea that exercise and strength would strip a woman of her femininity and, and make her, you know, sort of an inappropriate um, outlier. And, and that really had a very kind of chilling effect on women's interest and desire in pushing themselves physically. I was kind of blown away by the Steinem quote that we had at the very top of the show. Just this idea that, that the literal physical strength of women would have been just mm. completely denied by by society as as a possibility or and certainly as a desirable one. Yes, yes. I mean, it's interesting too because Gloria Steinem herself went through you know her own sort of transformation as she she had kind of she had just accepted that she was not athletically gifted, not, not as capable. And it was only in her fifties that she herself began lifting weights and sort of discovered the power of that firsthand. But, um, you know, I think historically their women's strength, um, has been really threatening to our society and that counts for both, you know, figurative strength and power, but also literal strength. Um, I think in the, 
you know, particularly in the post-World War II era, um, when gender norms were so strictly enforced, the idea that a woman might, you know, cultivate muscle so that she was stronger than the man in her life or the men in her life um, was really threatening to the proper social order. Mm. You know, and you kind of get to something that is laced throughout all these conversations about fitness, which is that sort of relationship between the inner and the outer. And we're going to come back to this Mm. in the show a bunch of different times. But from the very beginning, there was this kind of uncomfortable uh, alliance of inner, you know, like it's changing you from the inside, making you feel good and strong, Mm -hmm. but also you're going to look thinner and fitter and more sexually attractive. Yes. I mean, and that that is really the central tension of this whole topic. And for me, it was the central challenge of telling the story because I wanted to acknowledge and honor, you know, the progress we had made while also explore this really difficult, complicated um, aspect to fitness. And that's, you know, I, I write in the book that it can be for women, physical activity can be such a tool of liberation, but the culture could also be a tool of oppression. And so, um, you know, in the early days, in the 1950s and 1960s, this this time that I was just, you know, describing, um, some of the earliest contemporary fitness evangelists recognized that if they had tried to just sell strength for straight sake or a regular physical routine, um, you know, again, on, on the surface, it, that message would have been dead on arrival. The, and so they they very, they kind of savvily um, learned to pitch exercise for women as a beauty tool. Um, Bonnie Pruden, the fitness pioneer who I write about in the first chapter of my book, um, had all these great catchphrases, or or just, I should say, clever catchphrases. And (laughs) (laughs) one of them was, um, no muscle, no curve. You know, under every curve, there's a muscle, which again is, I don't know if that's so scientifically sound, but she she had a a point to get across. And um, it was her way of convincing, you know, skeptical women to to exert themselves um, Mm -hmm. in a way that was socially acceptable and would make them more attractive. Yeah. We're talking to Danielle Friedman about her new book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. And we'd love to hear from you. Did you live through this change of women getting stronger and having a changed relationship to exercise? We'd love to hear from you. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Danielle Friedman about her new book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. Love to hear from you. What's a workout regimen that you've picked up you never would have imagined yourself trying? Or what's a workout regimen you found empowering or the reverse, disempowering? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email's forum at kqed.org. Danielle, we got to talk about the person who comes to mind when many people think of women's fitness, that is Jane Fonda. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a, a crucial figure, right, in, in, in all this entire world. Absolutely, yes. You know, I think a lot of people sort of, especially maybe younger people, millennials and younger, assume that the history of women's fitness started you know, with Jane Fonda. And that's for good reason. Um, one of the fitness pioneers I interviewed said that he likes to think of women's fitness history as BJ and AJ before Jane and after Jane. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane um, was significant in this space for so many reasons. Um, there's her whole, you know, her whole personal story and the fact that she was this equally revered and reviled activist. She was, a, an, of course, an actress at the time when she started her original workout studio in Beverly Hills. But, but that's, I mean, I talk a lot about that in the book. Um, that's only a small part of the story. So Jane originally went into the fitness business to fund her then husband, Tom Hayden's political career, um, which is sort of an irony, you know, because God, her, it's incredible detail. It, yeah. It, yeah. And, um, and for many years, every dime that her fitness, you know, empire brought in went to uh, Tom Hayden and, and their pack and his campaigns. Um and so she started this small business because she, people told her, do what you know. Um, she had been a lifelong um, devotee of ballet, and then she discovered aerobics. And it just, it took off. I mean, she was also really the first, the first big celebrity influencer in that Hollywood celebrity influencer, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, you know, magazines would talk about like what they would some, the more things change, the more they stay the same, but they would talk about, you know, what stars ate and how they moved. But Jane was the one who really um, embodied, you know, that um, she, she, she brought her own routine sort of to the masses and became yeah. a spokesperson. Yeah. Yeah. And part of that, of course, is right. She was an early VHS pioneer. And we, I want to talk about that history in just a second. But first, We have to hear, this is from one of her early videos. It's a cut of Mm. the beginning of the Jane Fonda workout. Are you ready to do the workout? This is the beginner's workout. Stand with your feet a little more than hip distance apart. Stomach tight, buttock pulled in. Go out of your torso and head right to and back to left. Stretch it out front and to the right. One, two. Love it. VHS one, history two. I mean, that it's so, it like gets in here. I've had that song stuck in my head now yes, uh, yes. for the last couple of days. Um, tell us a little bit about how this videotape ended up making history and, and really propelling Jane Fonda to a different level mm-hmm. of stardom, even though she was already a star. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So her workout studio was such a success that she was approached to write a book, um, which became a massive bestseller, uh, Jane Fonda's workout. And through the book, um, 
that led to the opportunity to make this tape. What's so interesting is in 1982, when, um, and we're, we're nearing, by the way, the 40th anniversary of the release of the tape later this month. Um, at the time, nobody she knew owned a VCR. No one she knew purchased VHS tapes. VCRs were prohibitively expensive for most, and people just didn't really understand why anyone would want to watch a movie that many times. I mean, it's a very, obviously, it's such a, such a different mindset from today. Um, initially, she said no. She said, I got my book. I'm making an LP. Why do I need to do that? Um, but after the producer was pretty persistent, she made this, this home workout tape, and it, it went, you know, viral before viral was a thing. Um, it brought, it, it brought her very sort of aspirational brand of fitness to, to the masses. And then it went global. Um, and it's also credited, it's credited not only with launching the home fitness industry, but the home video industry at large, because people found that if they wanted to, you know, reap the benefits of her workout, they had to own it. Um, and, you know, by it made her a global icon. It also created a real intimacy between her fans and, and herself. You know, people felt like they knew her because she was appearing in their living room or bedroom every day. Um, they called the workout Doing Jane. <laughs> and, and it would spawn by the end of the 80s, there were 500 workout videos being produced every year. Um, and her workout, her videos sold 17 million copies, making it one of the best-selling home videos God. of all time. And didn't, I think it's in the book that the the inflation-adjusted cost of the video, was like, it was like over $100, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was really, it was an investment. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Uh, but an and, investment uh, in yourself, Danielle, an investment yeah. in yourself. <laughs> of course, uh, <laughs> of course. Uh, I did want to talk about Janice Darling, who was one of the instructors who worked with Jane Fonda, an African-American woman. And mm-hmm. there's a, a quote in your book where Janice Darling says, people used to call me the Tina Turner of fitness, but they didn't want mm-hmm. the Tina Turner of fitness. They wanted the Kathy Smith of fitness, who I'm assuming was a blonde white lady. Um, yes. Tell, talk to me about sort of that aspect of the Fonda workout and the kind of the racial undertones and class undertones of this kind of 80s aerobic movement? Yes. Um, Well, it was really, Janice was really, um, you know, the exception in that she managed to forge a successful career in the fitness industry. Um, From the, really from the birth of the contemporary fitness industry in the 1950s and 60s, it was really marketed on every level as a middle to upper class white person's pursuit. Um, and, And part of that was because there was this sort of assumption that it was, it was the classes that sort of were not engaged in physical labor that were that were partaking in the country's um, new push toward leisure and comfort that were that were suffering physically, and that kind of helped to propel the birth of the fitness industry for men and for women. Um, and so, for Janice, um, you know, she talked to me about how she 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 loved to dance. She loved exercise, but, you know, she often had to contend with being the only person of color in the room. And Jane Fonda was very conscious of hiring a, uh, she was quite ahead of her time in hiring a diverse staff. Um, but when Janice ultimately went out and started her own fitness studio, um, 
it, you know, it was, it was a, a phenomenon for a little bit and it started getting media coverage, but the coverage, as she talked about, uh, she told me was very, there were, um, racialized. There, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, it was described as being like a revival, you know, there were, as Jenna said, there were these sort of, um, it's just wild and, it, you know, this sort of, um, she, yeah. And so it, she felt like, um, she was a novelty. You know, she wasn't being pursued as as the next great, you know, fitness uh, role model. She was just seen as a novelty and she ultimately left the industry. Let's get to our first call. Andrea from Pleasanton. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, I, uh, just one of the most empowering experiences and transforming experience of my life came from fitness. Um, after I became a mother, um, I have always been into fitness, but I never got into it professionally until I had my second child. Um, the group that I found is called fit for mom and it's a national organization that is so empowering for women because it's not just the workout. It is um, an entire village. So I think the whole motherhood community, the sisterhood of motherhood, finding other moms at a time where um, things can be so digital and so secluding for moms, moms have been under so much pressure and finding a fitness environment that is so empowering to women um, where women can work out with their kids. They don't have to find childcare. It's women from all walks of life super diverse, um, all over the country, um, you know, reaching all kinds of women. And through that transforming experience and finding some of my best friends through fitness, um, as a woman, as a mother, um, making those connections led me to then become a fitness professional. So now I teach classes at 5.30 in the morning <laughs> and um, <laughs> something I never, ever thought I would do in my entire life, but it's just something that's so non-negotiable because it's that time not only for fitness, but to hang out with other moms that are near and dear to you. So yeah. it's not just the, the fact that it was not just a fitness class, but an entire community. Um, it, was, it was so transforming to find um, and connect with other mothers and then make that connection you know, um, make that leap to being a fitness professional yeah. later in life and, you know, being a mom of three kids and being in the best shape of my life, um, where it kind of took that bond of motherhood and that connection that, um, that group fit for mom made with moms to make that happen. Oh, thanks so much for that, uh, story, Andrea. And I, you know, Daniel Friedman, I think that sense of community does seem to be what drives a lot of the very most successful kind of studios or even, you know, the the way that uh, Peloton or online things will be like, hey, we're all one. We're all in this together. It does seem to be something that works for people. Yes, yes. And I'm so glad. Um, I'm so glad just that the topic of community and especially for for new new moms was brought up. That's something that I, I um, relate to very much personally as well. Um, but you're right. And, and something that um, I found really fascinating about the community aspect is that um, 
actually the researcher Kelly McGonigal at Stanford has written about this. When we move in sync with other people, our bodies actually release um, neurochemicals, neurotransmitters that encourage feelings of social connection and trust and purpose in life. And, you know, for so many, when you look at so many workouts that have taken off over the past 50 years, often the kind of magic ingredient has been synchrony. So, Mm. um, soul cycle. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And so it's, you know, it's, um, those, those feelings are on top of kind of, of course, like the other chemical processes that happen in our bodies that, you know, that, um, exercise is often described as a kind of natural antidepressant, you know, um, but yeah, I, so that community aspect is really powerful. And I also write in the book about how, um, you know, historically, it was really significant that these fitness pioneers created these primarily female-only spaces um, at a time when women really did exist to serve others, you know, and maybe they would like the, they would escape to the to the beauty salon um, or to do something that was still kind of in service of of being appealing to others. And with fitness communities, it was it was a place where they often connected. It was caring for themselves, you know. It was sort of early self care, um, and you know maybe initially for some people started out as a way of, of um, changing their appearance or losing weight, but then they would discover more profound benefits and communities that have, they call families, you know, that have really now been with them for like, you know, the arc of their lives. Um, It was really moving. We have a great story. Hillary in San Rafael. Welcome to the show. Hi. Uh, Actually, I wanted to tell you that I took the classes from uh, the bar classes from the original bar person, Lottie Burke, in 1980s in England. And the first studio was opened in Chelsea and Fulham. And uh, very often, Lottie herself would come to the studio, walk around with a stick, and <laughs> tap, tap women's bottoms and other parts and say things which I can't say on the air (laughs) and it was the most wonderful experience and I followed through Lottie Burke for many years for at least 20 years when I moved back to the states I knew that there was a bar method and I tried it in the beginning the original bar and it was very much more athletic than Lottie would teach Lottie was more isometrics and tiny Mm -hmm. tiny movements of the pelvis Lots of pelvic work. And um, so since then, I have joined Pure Bar, which actually is uh, a combination of what Lottie taught and a lot more aerobics. And um, I'm not as young as I was when I did Lottie. So it is challenging, but I find it very, very rewarding. Uh, So I just wanted to let you know that um, Lottie was very important in my life. Uh-huh. I can see her face now that she walked mm. around with a wonderful accent. And um, she was really, you could tell that she had a lot of ballet training. And the original Lottie had a lot of ballet movements. So interesting. Hillary, thank you so much for uh, that that personal experience. And that sounds, um, I can't say that sounds entirely fun to me, but I appreciate <laughs> that it was a good experience. Um I have you been hearing from a lot of 
women as you've gone, you know, talking about this book who've who experienced these different, I don't want to call them fads, but different sort of like exercise movements? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I heard from them while I was reporting the book. And then, and then of course, since the book has come out. Um, and, you know, the, the kind of overarching message that I've gotten is, um, you know, I think exercise culture, women's exercise history has really largely been written off, you know, often been written off as kind of silly or trivial or kitschy with the leotards and, mm -hmm. and um, you know, the leg warmers. And for a lot of women, especially women who, who did not grow up with opportunities to cultivate, you know, that physical competence and trust in their bodies, um, you know, gaining access to these, to these workouts really did have a profound effect on them. Mm -hmm. And I, I especially love speaking with, and I still do women in their seventies, eighties, even nineties who, you know, talk about the, the impact of, um, their fitness communities and of just learning to learning to, um, like I said, trust their bodies, um, the impact that that has had on their life and that it continues to have as they, as they enter, um, the next stage of their life. Yeah. Uh, we got some great listener comments in that I want to, uh, quickly read here. One listener tweets, please mention how women's training in sports was just an offshoot of what men were doing, not always appropriate or beneficial to the women athletes. Now, slowly, programs are becoming individual and gender-specific, minimizing injuries in girls and women making better athletes. Another listener writes, I love this discussion. I find that ballet and dance claims an interesting place in the history of female athletes. Dance was the only place that took me as an active child. I lament mm. that I could not find a spot as a female athlete professionally. And Lanny tweets, a big part of this change has to be due to Title IX at my Bay Area high school in the 70s. Girls could swim and maybe dive. That was it. It's crazy looking back on it. I do. I, yeah, we got to go to a break in just a sec, Daniel. But I assume that Title IX does play a, kind of a big role broadly, particularly in just widening sports participation. Absolutely. And we're also nearing the 50th anniversary of Title IX in, <laughs> in June. Um <laughs> Yeah, it, you know, um, for so many women, it basically created, you know, a class, uh, new generations of women who did have access to sports and athletics that did instill in them that, you know, that sense of personal uh, confidence and, and they enjoyed the feeling of being strong. And so then when they graduated, you know, they wanted to keep, they wanted to keep being active and mm -hmm. they really helped to fuel the fitness industry. We're talking to Daniel Friedman about her new book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World. A fascinating history. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Danielle Friedman about her new book, Let's Get Physical. I wanted to talk a little bit about Jazzercise. One of the like searing and fascinating memories of my childhood, looking back over these 40 years, uh, is going to Jazzercise with my mom in Silmar, California. And can you just, we actually have a little, um, a, a cut of Judy Shepard. It's Missette, right? Judy Shepard Missette? Uh, Missette, yeah. Yeah, miss it. Uh, beginning her own uh, VHS tape. Uh, let's uh, let's listen into this. Now find that beat. There it is. Oh yeah, that's good. Ho! Now slap, release, contract, release, contract, release. There you go. Smiling, smiling, smiling. Now to the pelvis. Front, back, front, back. Push it, pull it, push it, pull it. Yeah. There you go. Now your favorite thing. The hips, sugar. Come on and shake that cute little booty of yours. Ow! Yeah. I love that clip so much. I've listened to it several times. Uh, I, I'm not sure what to say about it. What would you say that? Um, well, first of all, happy birthday, Alexis. Oh, hey, I hope thank that you. was a that yes. was a uh, a good birthday <laughs> treat. Got me um, fired up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, Judy, I mean, to me, it's just like pure joy. Um, Judy at that time was she was a professionally cha- trained jazz dancer, and that the clip is just it's it's a little extra, it's jazz hands mm-hmm. and it's just joy, you know? Um, when I occasionally, when I've needed a pick me up uh, and that's from the 1983 video, Let's Jazzercise, I've, it's on YouTube, I've popped it in and it's just, it's a way to, it, it really feels, you know, quite removed from some of the, the kind of boutique fitness cultures of today that still can feel quite um, a little bit staid and competitive and so focused on performance. Um, and that Judy, so she created Jazzercise in 1969, um, aerobic dancing in general was sort of invented by a few different women independently across the country. And, um, and it, it took off because I think partly for many women who had no interest in kind of smashing gender barriers by maybe taking up running or weightlifting or partaking in some of the other physical activities that were taking off at that time, dance felt safe. Mm. Um, you know, dance was historically feminine. Dancers' bodies were were celebrated bodies. And so a lot of the women who went to her early classes talked about how they, you know, they they initially walked in the door because first of all, dancing seemed, seemed fun. You know, they associated it with pleasure and parties. They did, you know, they also were, were 
motivated by the desire to change their appearance. But then as they continued with it, you know, they discovered um, more meaningful rewards mm-hmm. and they did become more, they, they felt, you know, just more confident in their body. Um, by the early eighties, Jazzercise was the country's second fastest growing franchise right behind Domino's pizza. Um wow. It really was a phenomenon. Gosh, that's incredible. Um, mm-hmm. uh, also, hilarious uh, anecdote that they were in the 1984 Olympic ceremony as kind of yes. the, be- the best America had to offer. Um, oh, my gosh. Yeah. I want to bring on another guest. But first, uh, I want to contextualize it just with a, a little quote from your book. Uh, you write, a new generation of fitness pioneers are working to challenge assumptions of what a fit body looks like. They're working to make exercise about acceptance, not aesthetic transformation, and to make it affordable and accessible for everyone. If the rise of women's fitness represents the fruits of second wave feminists, the next chapter in fitness history promises to be one that reflects the ideals of third and fourth wave feminists, smashing persistent gender norms, acknowledging intersectionality, and honoring the experiences and traumas of marginalized women. Want to bring on now joining us Latoya Shante Snell, one of these pioneers. She's a founder of a running fat chef, a motivational speaker, a Hoka athlete, a content creator. She's run 200 races, 25 of which were marathons. That's impressive. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Latoya. Thank you so much for having me on here. So you're a fitness influencer now that you have you have made it into this territory. What, what's it like for you uh, being a fitness influencer? Like, how, how does it feel? Um, well, for, for starters, um, I did not take well to the being actually um, classified as an influencer hmm. because um, before actually entering this space, I had a lot of assumptions, um, preconceived assumptions of what an influencer actually does. Um, Once I was kind of thrown into it, um, that transition from the culinary industry, I have a new layer of respect for the work that's being done in this space because it's much more than just wearing a certain item or an outfit and promoting it to the public. It's um, We're allowed to actually use our platforms as a way to get across social commentary. And that's what I do with my platform. Yeah. I mean, how do you see the way that Black fitness folks are sort of interact with and are either aided by the kind of mainstream white industry or or held back by? Um, there's a mixture. I believe that um, the fitness industry have a long way to go when it comes down to proper representation. It is not enough to, you know, to welcome us into the space because we have been here for a long time. And it, most times when we are celebrated, it's almost as if we have to be the quote unquote top tier um, just to be celebrated. So someone with my body type, and of course, you know, viewers are not able to see me, but I am a plus size woman who happens to have multiple disabilities that are not visible. Um, and most times narratives like mine are looked over unless there's an instance where, you know, we just happen to luck up. And instead I would love to shape the narrative. And I know several others would love to shape the narrative to where everyone's included, regardless of what you look like, what's your, what's your ability, um, how you're performing and what you're doing in the amount of times that you're doing it a week. Yeah. Did your visibility come with a cost to you personally? 
Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I believe that the more that you actually put yourself out there, the more that you're, you elect to be vulnerable in this space, um, especially as a woman, um, it opens up uh, doors where people do not respect boundaries. Um, there is a lack of forgiveness when people do make mistakes um, in this space. And you know, while it is great to be able to partner with, you know, incredible brands, to be able to be taken serious on these platforms, to be able to do motivational speak, um, speaking, it does um, intrude where I don't know where my nine to five actually ends. Because realistically, as a social media content creator, um, my life is essentially my work. And, you know, without mm -hmm. those boundaries, it's very easy to get into a great area where I don't know when to actually turn it on and off. Yeah. You know, I want to, uh, before we let you go, I want to pop a quick question from uh, listener Allison to your quick comment. She says, I found several exercise methods empowering from running to swimming to using a Peloton. Regardless of the regime, I can't seem to untangle body issues and societal demands to be thin. If I'm being oh. honest, fitness is about more than internal health. It's also a way for me to achieve a physical version of myself that I find attractive. I mean, Allison, I feel you. I feel like I struggle with this exact situation. So how do you think about that, uh, Latoya? I believe that, you know, we need to actually have more conversations about the mental health part um, of these things. Uh, when we have been crammed over the years um, with a lot of diet culture um, geared items, especially things as um, directed towards marginalized communities like women, like, um, you know, the LGBTQ plus, or just an in, in instance being plus size, we are always sold on a notion that we have to look a certain way, perform a certain way and be a certain way. And this is marketed and advertised everywhere. So instead, you know, um, instead of saying the cheesy thing of, you know, love yourself at all times, instead, I would ask people to just really be open, honest, and take their time as they're trying to either become comfortable with their body, maybe even change their body um, as they, you know, celebrate their bodies for what is able to do and making peace with the things that they're not able to do. You know, I don't think there's any person that's an exception to the rule that doesn't encounter any type of body image issues, whether they're male, female, or non-gendered. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much. Latoya Shante Snell, founder of Running Fat Chef, motivational speaker, a Hoko athlete, and man, 25 marathons. I still, I, I know Danielle's done one. I've done three. 25 seems to be on me, but thank you uh, so much for joining us this morning, giving us your, your perspective. Thank you for this opportunity. Yeah. Daniel Friedman, I wanted to also run that question by you and how you've settled this for yourself. You know, how do... You untangle, as Allison put it, you know, body issues and societal demands to be thin with just the empowerment that you can find in exercise. Yeah, it's really tricky. And I write in the book about how, you know, even having spent four years studying this history, I, I am not immune from sort of the occasional, you know, feeling motivated to embark on an exercise regimen because um, I want to change the way I look or just the promise of a makeover. I think, I think in our culture, you know, the, the makeover as an ideal is very, is very um, enticing. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I, um, you know, I think for me, and this, this was also one of my goals in telling this story, I wanted to really reveal some of the hidden forces that are, that are at play that mm -hmm. shape the way we think about exercise and the way that it has been historically marketed to women um, and, and used as an incentive, you know, um, 
I know that for me, by being more aware of those of those forces, I'm able to kind of stop. And when I find myself wanting to exercise to change how I look, just think about maybe like what's really going on? Like, what am I really after there? Which of course can be easier said than done. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think a good litmus is sort of, um, if you can, you know, to, to try to find a movement practice that ma just makes you feel good, that is not tinged with feelings of pressure or should or guilt or, or comparison. And, and, you know, that can be, that can be like pushing yourself really hard at a boot camp or a running for a training for a marathon, or it can just be going for a brisk 20 minute walk mm -hmm. around the block every day. Mm -hmm. But um, we know that we benefit from movement. And so the more we can kind of identify what's really working for us, particularly for our mental health, making us feel good and helping us find our tribe, I think um, the better off we'll be. Let's bring in Allison from Redwood City. Welcome to the show, Allison. Thank you. Um, so I'm 65 and my mother went to Wellesley and was a bookworm and never did any exercise. And I grew up with a dad that had been at Pearl Harbor in the Navy. Mm -hmm. And we have a cottage in Wisconsin. So I did all the water sports there and tennis. And then I came out to Mills College, and I was a dancer in high school, a tennis player in college, and a serious sailor. And my brother had me convinced I was fat because I had muscles in my legs in high school. But I was homecoming queen at a high school with 4,800 kids, so I don't think I was that fat. But it doesn't matter if I was because I really loved what I was doing. But all the guys I dated, mothers, would say things like, oh, that Allison, she's very competitive, isn't she? Oh, Allison, she's a lovely girl, but oh, she called you to play tennis or she called you to go canoeing. I don't know if that's really very ladylike. And so Mills had a really great rowing crew when I was there. We could beat University of Washington, which is a big school. <laughs> and uh, Title IX came out in 1975, the year I graduated from high school. I could beat all the girls in tennis, all the girls in volleyball, all the girls in badminton, but they could get full scholarships to college starting in mm. 1979, all of a sudden. And so as a dancer, that didn't help me, right? And I tore my ACLs and stopped dancing once I went to Tahoe and had an accident skiing. But anyway, my point is, I remember Jane Fonda in, on Golden Pond and how fabulous she looked coming out of the water in her bikini. <laughs> I remember Linda Hamilton when she did the movie Terminator mm. and her arm, she's setting up her gun and her arms looked amazing. And I remember, um, what's her name? Estelle, the gal in the water, the wonderful water movies in the 40s. Um, swimming with Johnny Weissmuller. And so I've always felt very proud of how I looked, but I also constantly got grief about being too strong. And I remember Christy, uh, what was your name, on the cover of Sports Illustrated um, when she had this sparkly bathing suit on and she was muscular. And people were, were like, oh, look at her. That's just too much. Oh, that's not feminine. Or like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> People are so threatened, just like you said earlier. I was just yeah. sitting here chomping at the bit for the last 45 minutes. Yeah. You know, women can't be strong inside or outside. It's just too threatening. Mm -hmm. And so get over it, right? Thank <laughs> you, Allison. I <laughs> yes. appreciate that. Thank you so much for that. And and. Clearly, I found your constellation of people who kind of represented a, a sort of strength that uh, was really significant. I want to get to one more call. Uh, Heather in Redwood City. Welcome to the show, Heather. Hi, can you guys hear me okay? Yeah, we sure can. Go ahead. Sorry. Hi, happy birthday, Alexis. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I just wanted to say I think a hopeful sign that this is changing. You know, I'll be 50 this year. I grew up dancing, taking ballet and jazz and character, and I love it, and I still dance. It's, it's a real passion for me, but I have to admit, looking back, I don't know it was the healthiest environment. You know, when I was growing up dancing 40 years ago, it was very much about being thin, being feminine. I have a 14-year-old daughter that dances now. She takes ballet and three days a week, they do strength training. You know, they do core work, and they think of themselves as athletes. So I think, I think this, it is this wave of feminism, and this new generation of women will change the way we view strength of women, you know, because they think differently about themselves already. Yeah. Thank you I so much that. for that perspective, um, a, a quite hopeful perspective. At a time when, you know, Daniel, do you worry that... Uh, that this the new kind of fitness actually sets an even more impossible body norm like the new the new goal of of being thick is actually mm. really difficult and not possible for many people you know in that in the the forms that it's oftentimes celebrated in in celebrities so what give us a takeaway from this whole history being able to kind of contextualize the way that these body norms have have changed and these these aspirations and these exercise movements what what should people bear bear in mind as they they see what's celebrated uh, in our culture well one way to think of it is that as as exercise has become increasingly accepted for women, it has also been increasingly expected of women. And, you know, with throughout each decade, decade, the ante has kind of been raised for what, what is acceptable. Um, and we're at a point now, which it's wonderful that, you know, um, people don't think twice about young girls doing, you know, doing strength training to complement their dancing or women participating in CrossFit, you know, for example, um, lifting heavy weights. But, um, but we've really seen historically that with every kind of shift, um, there has been the, the ideals for women's bodies have inched kind of increasingly out of reach. Um, and, you know, I think just, I don't know, on one hand, recognizing that, that, that it's, it's not just, you know, it's, it's a social, it's a society wide kind of issue can just mm -hmm. be helpful to bear in mind. Um, but you know, I think that also I heard from so many people who told me that, particularly with women who who lift, that at first they were sort of maybe put off or scared about developing visible visible muscles because of some of the stigmas that remain. But then once they once they learned what their bodies could do, they they kind of stopped um, they stopped focusing on that hmm. so much and. And that became their focus. Yeah. If you're interested in it, too, my, one of my absolute favorite fitness content of any kind is called Swole Woman. Men and women get a lot, a lot out of it. Um, thank you so much, Dan, Daniel Friedman. Your new book, Let's Get Physical, How Women Discovered Exercise and Reshaped the World, is truly an excellent book. Thank you so much for writing. Learned so much. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been such a pleasure. Absolutely. I'm Alexis Madrigal. It is my birthday. Thank you so much for listening to Forum. And stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.